Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain. And make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes old and new on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify. It is one of the most important positions one can hold on a musical, and it is probably the one that is least understood by audiences and probably by a good number of industry professionals as well. It's the role of the music director. While there are many working today, there are only a handful that are as iconic and as legendary as today's guest. His iconic work as a music director is probably best associated with the works of Stephen Sondheim, having served as the music director on Pacific Overtures, Sweeney Todd, Mary Levy Roll Along, Sunday in the Park with George, Into the Woods, and Passion, plus other original productions such as On the 20th Century, Jerome Robbins' Broadway, Crazy for You, Mail, uh, and countless other productions for the Roundabout Theater, and just about every single Sondheim concert that has ever been seen. To tell us what it was like to work with such legends as Hal Hastings, Hal Prince, Andrew Lloyd Webber, Comden and Green, Kander and Ebb, Marvin Hamlish, Jerome Robbins, Susan Stroman, and so many more. Here is Tony, an Emmy Award winner, and even more importantly, the proud papa of Alex, Paul Gemignani. Paul, how are you today? I'm great. How are you guys? Good. We are so happy to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Paul, we're, I'm, I'm so curious. Why do you think that the role of the music director is not one that it's you know, more well-known in the industry? And we were talking a little bit before we went on the air, which is it's something that really schools don't even teach so much today. Why do you think that is? I think it's two things. Uh, basically, I think one is that uh, the younger people, or, or let me put it another way, the, the musical director thinks of himself as not uh, one of the creative team. He thinks about himself as a worker, uh, usually many times, not so much, not so much when I came up, but now people are picked for their for what they can do as opposed to right. what they are like for instance i can't play piano i've never put been pianist i'm a drummer and a cello and and that that was outrageous when i did that when people right. went you're a drummer and you're the musical director today because all of them all of them are pianists because then it saves money if you see what i'm talking about right and now what that's done is it's filtered over into the musical director's job on broadway where you play piano and conduct the orchestra and do this and do that not saying any of these people are bad good or different i'm not judging their talent i'm just saying what how the job has changed in that respect that's one thing the other thing is the musician from day one on broadway was a second class citizen Mm. still is not to all of us who work Mm -hmm. there of course but to most people i mean i've had people come down to the orchestra pit. I mean, after me standing there for three hours, right? Orchestra. This was not recently. This is like when that when there wasn't, you know, they didn't record or they didn't put orchestras in a room, <laughs> separate rooms, so that what it sounded like was a recording in the theater. Okay. Right. And and rightly so. It's it, the focus of notoriety goes to the writers. And the director, and sometimes the choreography, depending on who is what. 
So you're sort of lost. Now, I, the reason why I think I succeeded, and I'm serious about this, is because I didn't know any better. I came from the classical jazz world. I had nothing. I didn't knew nothing about musical theater. I, I saw one musical theater production in my life before I came to New York, which was a Merman and Gypsy with my mother when I was about 13. <laughs> and did that leave any impression? That didn't really do anything for you? I talked to Milton Rosenstock, who was a conductor. Because <laughs> you were more interested in that. I, I, I thought, because I was a musician. I was, I, I, I played for a long time. So I, I went down and talked to him. I didn't know who he was, but I right. later I did. And we used right. to laugh about it. I mean, geez, uh, yeah. he's a legend. No, absolutely. And the thing is that um, I, I think that because I came from a different world entirely, I didn't know any better. I got, I lived, I came from a, from a world like you guys are creating now. You, you, you talk to each other, you communicate, you create a thing within, you know, five people. You know, you play in a jazz quartet. You're all, you're all creatives. You know, you, 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 uh, not so much in the classical world, but at least in a classical orchestra, you feel like you're important. On Broadway, they put you in a hole and never talk to you. Half the cast never knows your name. I'm talking about if you're a player. Yep. And what you play, you know, that's shame. That depend on the depending on the leads in the cast that mm-hmm. that can change, and depending on the musical director, how much he infuses the orchestra into the, you know. Uh, uh, um. So I think that the reason why my career went ahead in in the respect of of g- g- being able to say things and mostly being a part of the creative team and being recognized is because I spoke up. You know, I'd, I'd say when I thought stuff was wrong, I'd say when I didn't think a singer could sing and was getting hired because they were a good actor and, and it was a musical role. Right. I, I would open my mouth. And and there there are few people since or today that will do that. And so what it does is it keeps, it keeps that job as a uh, lesser than it is in terms yeah. of in value and what it, it how it how it how it reacts in a, in a playing. I mean, you when you understand, I'll tell you one thing. You you guys know this, but I will tell you one thing: why I feel that this job is so important and why it has to be done correctly and why it's rarely done correctly. Mm-hmm. You open the show, the Tony Awards happen. The only person on the creative team that is there on any regular basis is the musical director after that. You don't see the director. He's off doing something else. I, I don't mean he never comes by. Right. You, don't, you don't see the choreographer. You have the dance captain. So the only original person that was in the room when the thing was created before any actor got involved is the musical director. Hmm. Now, sometimes that's not true, of the way, depending on the way the show is written, but I'm just saying you are the one that's ending up running the country a country running <laughs> running running the, run the uh, company from yeah. a from a from a creative uh, point of view from from the from the acting point of view. Yes, there's a stage manager taking care of the stage blocking, which usually is what it is blocking. Mm-hmm. It's not uh, you know it's not they they don't go to the dressing room. I mean, unless it's an emergency, but you don't find them. You find my job more in the dressing room talking over a moment in the show that's not working at the moment or a slip back or something. This is what a musical director is supposed to do. Also, 
he he needs to be she he needs she I don't care he he or she need to be um, everybody's friend and I mean that in a funny way I mean he, he, the actors must feel that they, for whatever the silly reason is they can come to you and go you know I just don't whatever and you're there to help them the exact same thing with the people in the orchestra they've got to feel that you have their back no matter what because nobody else does that's right. And I'm not being exaggerating. I'm not exaggerating about that. The union since early 70s hasn't done squat. They talk a good game, but they're, they're more interested in, in, they're afraid of losing jobs so that the, the producers have just eaten them up. You know, and I'm sure that's true in other unions. So anyway, um, I, I think that, that this is an important job because it is pivotal to making a show look the same on December the 31st, 1971, as it does if it runs three years, yeah. three years later. Yeah. With all the changes, with all the cast changes, with everything else. And, and that's not an easy task, but it is very easy if there's a camaraderie set up. Right. Because we're all doing the same thing. We're all trying the same thing. I mean, think about your Robert Broadway for a second. That show never went downhill. I mean, it did nothing but improve the entire run. And that's because we all really cared, really cared about it. As hard as that show was to get up and running, and as hard as it was, and, and, and a taskmaster that, that, that Jerry was, it was worth every second. And every time we got through it, that show exhausted, we appreciated that we had the opportunity to do it. You know, you go to work, everybody... I think thinks that this work is easy. Oh, good! You go down, you do your little play, and then you go have a couple of beers, and you, you're cool. You know, and you only work three hours a day. Right, right. Well, you know, it's harder than that, but it's harder to 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 have a standard and to keep it, and and to have the 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 um, the commitment to what your art form is. You know, this this is something we created. This this musical theater like jazz basically. Mm -hmm. So if if you don't um, if it's not if it's not in inside you when you do it if it's not if you're not committed to it nobody sees you know you the audience can't tell they watch television you know what I'm saying there's no commitment involved but but you know you can tell. And, and it makes you a better actor, a better singer, a better conductor, a better musician. If that's the way you go into it, that's what I based anything I did on in my head. I did it, figuring that if I did it, they'd do it. Well, if I did it, the orchestra would do it. The, the relationship with the actors grew because of my commitment and their commitment went together. It wasn't separated by, oh, he's a musician, oh, you're an actor. Right. Paul, how do we help bridge that divide, you know, where, where you say, you know, the, uh, the musicians are treated like second-class citizens, which is true. How do we start to overcome that, or is that something that's just... Well, so if, if I were in charge of Ball of Broadway, the first thing I would do is I would not allow any musician to play where he couldn't be seen. I can't have a full orchestra, and that bothers me, but I love Studio 54 because... We're right there. We get to see you. We get to see yeah. all of the instrumentalists. That's, That's yeah. exactly right. It's so important. It's got a whole other thing on the on the show because of that. I would start by raising the pits back up 
to where they were in the 30s, mm. like what you see in the movies. So you can see the violin bows, and you can see the, if you're sitting in a certain place, you can see the, maybe a brass player, or, 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 you know, you can see somebody when they stand up with their instrument. Right. So that's the first thing I would do. I would make the pit bigger so that the sound coming out of them would, would um, not, not necessitate such an elaborate sound system, you know, because yeah. I know that, that in my shows, and the sound, sound designers I've worked with, we like natural sound, meaning when we do a Zitz probe, we start with the microphones off, not the actors. But sometimes we've done that. Sometimes the pain on, if I'm in front of them in a pit, and the pit's wide open enough, uh, the pit at um, the Broadway, I don't know mm -hmm. what it is now, but it used to be fairly open because it's a ballet house. That's what that was built for. That pit originally held 130 people. Yeah, I had no idea. Wow. Yeah. Well, when I went there with 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 Avita, uh, was the first show I did there. I couldn't get 21 people in there without. I had to put the piano outside the door because I couldn't get them in the door because wow. the producers had shoved the theater floor so far forward to put extra seats in. That's why the pits have gotten smaller. Anyway, you have to go back to the original design of the theaters to make this work. What I'm saying. Uh, and 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 to have everything up where you where when you're looking at the theater when you're looking at a number what you see is the orchestra playing like you do in the movies because if you don't see the musicians you don't know any you know they're not there also I would I would advocate on talkbacks and things like that if there were seven actors there to have at least four musicians there mm. and I would require it. By the, by, I used to go to the talkbacks at Roundabout myself because I can't legally ask the musicians to do that. But as I, I noticed later on, when I when I sometimes I wouldn't go, that a couple of musicians would show up, mm. at least the one. Because also you, as the musical director, instilling that pride in them, make them, it's the thing we were talking about before where everybody's in the same show, that. You can get that going. You don't have to do anything. You just it'll happen by itself, just like any good rally kind of thing. Yeah. Whether the musician thing and to go back to your original question could ever be answered and fixed. There's an apathy, you know, among actors and musicians and people who work in the theater. I go to my job, and now it's my oh, life. You know that. When I started, that wasn't there. I mean, you, you'd, you'd go out for a drink with one of the actors after work. You know, like somebody would ask you to, like, I know Len Carey, you asked me to go to a hockey game once. I'd never been to, a, I'm not a sports person at all. I'd never been to a hockey game in my life. And he was, he's from Canada. So <laughs> took me to game. No. incredible. And, you yeah. know, I'd never been there before. I'd never gone back. You know, I wouldn't want to. But, <laughs> but <laughs> it was. It was, you know, Mako and I used to go out for a beer every single night after. Yeah. So it, 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 it's changed a little bit like everything does, and that's okay. I also think the material has changed. Mm -hmm. I, think that, I think that how as valuable as the social media is and as valuable as what we're doing right now, mm -hmm. there's something missing 
that wasn't missing, say, when David Frost did it on TV mm. or when, when you hear it on the radio. I don't know why that is. It could be my own generation. There's something missing. There's a connection missing, even though we're looking at each other, we're talking, we're, you know, it's, I, don't, I don't know how to put my finger on it, mm-hmm. but it feels that way, and it mm. shows, shows feel that way. When mm-hmm. The first time I saw Book of Mormon, I went, there's nothing happening here. It's funny, but I didn't find anything really being said that made me go like that in my seat. Mm-hmm. From that show on, not totally, but mm-hmm. I, I felt, you know, once Disney started to take over Broadway and a lot of those things that are cartoons are up on stage. And you can't, you eat. I think one of the things that I mean, I'm I'm extremely lucky to have been privileged enough to work with the people I worked with because it was in the in the in the absolute heart of of the of the of the when this business was flourishing, and some of the greatest shows were written. You know, I'm I'm, I'm not just yeah. speaking about not speaking about Sondheim alone, but I mean Maury Yeston, you wrote nine. Uh, it was kind of, you know, I got to meet and, and work with Julie Stein. I, you know, mm. I, I couldn't ask for a better time to live. It goes in, it goes in, in, in uh, spurts of different, different values. And I think, I think Broadway, with the exception of Lynn Manuel, uh, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings by saying this, but ex- with the exception of him, I don't see a lot of n- new opinions that matter mm. i see a lot of fluff and frizz in the musicals i'm talking about the plays are doing pretty good i mean it sounds like when you were first starting out which was in the mid 60s you know you had things by people like hal prince and, and candor and Ebb that was so revolutionary did you feel that way when you first saw cabaret for the first time well here's the thing uh that's what made me think about I thought musical uh, comedy, uh, musical theater was frivolous. I thought it mm-hmm. was not played very well. Uh, I thought that the music wasn't really challenging enough. That I liked Julie Stein. But I never listened to those things. I never listened to them. I only, I only, I, I did my whole musical education on the road in cabaret because <laughs> I knew nothing from these things. I saw a cabaret that came to New York to visit a friend of mine, and um, I met him, and I, and I and he got me a ticket to the show. I, I I came from a jazz gig in Minneapolis, and I thought, well, I'm here, that close. I'll take a train from Chicago to New York and see my friend, and then before I go back home, because I'll never get. And I'm on the West Coast. I'm never coming. Right. You're from San Francisco originally. Yes. Right. Yeah. So. Um, I went and saw the show, and it blew my mind. I mean, it blew my mind. I, I'd never heard music like that in, in a theater situation. Uh, I wasn't a Kurt Vile fan, so I didn't hear Bertel Brecht stuff until later in my life. I didn't listen to that kind of music. I listened to jazz and classical music, period. I, I did not listen to musical theater. And uh, so uh, I, I saw Cabaret, and it had... You know, that was the original cast. It was a lot of Lenya, uh, Jack Kilford. It was all those guys. And and uh, I, I was like, whoa. I, I, and the story just hit me. 
Mm-hmm. So Ed and I talked a lot about it, and you know that's where I met Hal Hastings because I didn't I didn't ask for it to meet him. Ed thought I would like to meet him being a musician, and I, that's where I met Hal Hastings, and it ended up blah blah getting my first job as a drummer assistant conductor of, of the first national company of cabaret right on the spot. Well, and that's because I was trained as a classical musician and we were always trained to put, to have a resume handy. So I, my reading on that is I folded up a resume and put it in my pocket and carried it always. And I, and I had it in my pocket and I handed it to him and um, said, you haven't played many shows. I said, no. I have played a lot of Gilbert and Sullivan in the park in San Francisco. I don't think he knew that much about Gilbert and Sullivan, and uh, I certainly didn't know that much about Broadway, but <laughs> lucky for me. It's not, the, not the same at all. But anyway, um, and I got the job, make a long story short. Wait, he, but he, Paul, he, you, you, just turned, you, you just put your back to jazz and classical music? I mean, you, you, well, here's you, why, because here's what it was. I... I he said to me, who asked me what I was doing. I said, well, I just got off a jazz gig in Minneapolis. I came out to visit my friend Ed. I saw your show last night and thought it was incredible. This blew my mind. And he said to me, so how are you getting back to California? Have you got another gig? He said, no. I said, no. He said, well, I might have something for you. Can you have a resume? And I showed him my resume. Okay. He said, well, I don't know this. Let me check. But, you know, would you be up to for playing drums because he saw a lot of conducting credits on my because mm. i conducted a lot of light opera and and that kind of stuff in my when i as a jazz as a jazz musician and classic i would switch back and forth and uh and i said he said maybe assistant conductor i said okay um uh, sure yeah because i had no way i had to pay my own way back so that was like <laughs> I would have had to pay my own way back. So it was, it was a steady gig too. I mean, if you're well, going that's what I'm talking about. It's a gig. Yeah, yeah. for six months, and I and at the end, I said, "Well, that, can I leave in San Francisco?" Yes, that's our last <laughs> stop anyway. Before we go to whatever they, I think they broke it down to a bus and truck after that. All right, mm. so so that's how that happened. And uh, then I played that. I didn't know that assistant conductors on the road in the musical theater. It's not that way today, but when I was started, the only way assistant conductor would uh, get up to conduct is if the guy in front of him dropped dead right there on the podium and you, there was no other way because you never conducted. Ever. Really? Not yeah. even rehearsal. But because uh, I never did. And every time I asked Joe, Joe, Joe Lewis, uh, who ended up to be my assistant on Candide when I switched up to Candide, um, said, no, you're not going to conduct. Only if I drop dead are you going to conduct. Definitely. So, and I, I suddenly realized, oh, I see what that game was. Mm-hmm. Beating the pot. But I had a good time. I had a good yeah. time. And uh, I, and I learned a lot. And uh, playing that show, uh, uh, there was no part. The guy who had played it before me did not read the part that was written. He just made up his own part. Because I don't know whether he couldn't read music or whether that's what they were trying to do. I find that most Broadway drummers do that. They don't. They play sort of the part, but then they really make it their own. They make it better. <laughs> my own instinct. I just didn't know that it, that's the way it was done. Nobody told me anything. Anyway, I got through that, and um, he called me back to do Zorba. Six months later, when I got to San Francisco, I'd gotten home. I was there a week, and he called me and said, "I've got a new show." 
we'd like you to, I'd like you to come back and play. And I said, I, you know, I don't want to play drums on in Broadway musicals. I said, I'm a conductor and, you know, so I will, I'll tell you what I'll do. If you come back and do this job for me, when it goes on the road, and if it goes, if it goes on the road, you'll be the musical director or you'll be the conductor. And that's what happened. I took a chance. I thought, oh, well, what the hell? I didn't have a job at the time. I had an pr- open job at two nightclubs in New York. I mean, New York, in San Francisco, where I could go back to work there anytime. Right. So I wasn't losing anything. So I went back to New York and uh, played Zorba with Herschel Bernardi and went out on the road with, when it went out on the road with John Ray and Sheeta, uh, I was a conductor. And then he called me back. He called me, we got to um, San Francisco again, and he called me and said, I have a show that you need to come back. I'd like you to come back. You'll, you'll meet everybody you'll ever want, need to meet in show business in this show. And I said, doing what? And he said, being the drummer. I said, no. Nope. I said, I, I told you I'm a conductor. I, I don't, I'm trying to get out of this. I don't want to play the drums anymore. I played them since I was 16. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do, I want to be a conductor and I'll never do it if I don't try and do it. So I'm not, I going to have to say no. Mm-hmm. He said, listen, this is stupid. You, you need to do this. I said, well, who's, who, why? Who's in it? Well, Stephen Sondheim, I know who that was. Mm-hmm. Michael Bennett, didn't know who that was. Hal Prince, I knew because both yeah, shows, right. he was directing the both shows I'd worked with. Uh, and I'd met him a couple of times. Uh, that's the only person I knew. And I said, well, I, I don't know. I need time to think about it. Let me think about it over the weekend. I said, okay. He said, okay. And I called a bunch of my musician friends and they went, are you nuts? <laughs> What's the matter with you? Take the job. Get to New York. Are you, what are you, out of your mind? So I, on that advice, I went to New York and met Michael Bennett and Sondheim, and the rest is history. <laughs> did you guys hit it off right away? I mean, did you? could you tell? I mean, it was a pretty uh, amicable... From the first time meeting Michael and Stephen, it was match. Mm-hmm. Then, then things happened, and I took Polly's. He left for selling to the president. Next this is Hal? Hastings? Hal uh, Hastings. Yeah. So I conducted the end from the Tonys on. I mean, I didn't do the Tonys, but from that, after the Tonys on, I conducted the run in New York. And then I took it to L.A. Mm. By the time I came back, um, Night Music was already cast. He had no work for me. Mm. And I was literally, um, I, we had done the Scrabble album. We, 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 we had, we had, that was supposed to be a little York theater, two piano and drums thing. <laughs> and it turned into, because of so many people wanting to do it, uh, it turned into this big thing at the Schubert with a full orchestra with me conducting in front of everybody I'd ever have to know in show business. It's One, like the most iconic concert ever. <laughs> like an audition, you know, <laughs> Lenny was there. Everybody was there. And um, at the end of that concert, there was, there was, you know, hi, that was really good. And I had nothing, no, no jobs, nothing came up, nothing. I am in, uh, where was I living at the time? I think I, I moved, I, I think I was living in New Jersey. Uh, I had taken, out of desperation, 
I had taken, because musicians didn't get paid very much in those days. They don't get paid much now, but they yeah. didn't really get, I mean, I think my salary on the road in Cabaret was $450, including per diem. I was about to take a test to drive a school bus because it was a daytime job and it would allow me to audition and still go, go sub on, on Broadway. Right. But because I was a conductor, you didn't sub on Broadway. They, nobody, nobody would hire me again as a drummer because I was a conductor now, right? And suddenly one day, as I was about to take that test, Elliot Lawrence called, who, was, who I didn't know was a fan, and said he was leaving Sugar and he would like me to replace him. Would I would be interested? And I said absolutely. So I went on salary immediately and went to, to went to went to um, learn the show. I was in the middle of learning the show and at a matinee. I was about I was going to start conducting that Saturday matinee. I was looking at a Wednesday matinee, and the phone in the box office rang. I guess and somebody came up to me and tapped me on the shoulder and said, "There's a phone call for you in the in the." Uh, box office i felt like i was in a mickey rooney movie right i go to the box office it's how howard haynes uh telling me could i come to the office howard haynes was the general manager for our friends okay um, um could i come to the office in between shows and i said sure what for and he said i'll tell you when you get here got there found out that hal hastings had died and they oh. wanted to take over that music and now the rest is history yeah, that's so bittersweet. That's sort of, how it, that's sort of the trajectory. Yeah. You know, and I will say this right now, 90% luck. 90% in the right place at the right time. Paul, I was going to ask you before we move on, what, what are some lessons for, that you learned from Hal Hastings that you still take with you today when you music direct? Well, he taught me the business end of business. And he taught me uh, about... Um, to, to, to be a conduit for his musicians, give them a voice somewhere other than the pit and protect them. Then, Paul, what was the first show um, that you were sort of music directing from day one where you weren't coming in as a replacement? Would that be Candide? No, I replaced John Macherry and Candide because Macherry thought, Macherry was an opera guy. Right, Just, classical you know, guy. An opera guy, yeah. right. He thought, he was doing the evening shows and, and <sighs> he wasn't doing the matinees. And when he told Hal Prince that he wasn't doing the matinees, that was, was the end of his gig. None. <laughs> <laughs> and Hal moved me from night music, which I did not want to leave. You liked it. I did. But I had a great time. There's not a show that I would. Right. Well, there are some, but, but not, not these. So I moved to Canada. The first show I did on my own was Pacific Overtures. Okay, so why don't we take this show as an example? Um, would you walk us through what your duties and responsibilities are as a music director from, hey, there's a project, are you interested, all the way up until opening night? What all do you do as a music director? Well, if you're going to use Pacific Overtures... We can or we can use another show of your choosing. Well, I think Pacific Overtures is good because it's... The, it, 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 it was the most to do. Mm-hmm. I had to find a stage band, meaning I had to find two or three people that would be authentically Japanese or authentic Japanese musicians, uh, and preferably two, which I ended up doing. I found two, and uh, that's one thing. 
in that particular show, I wrote when 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 she she would choose Japanese folk songs because that's what we wanted to play on the side of the show. It's a Sakahachi and the and the and the Kodo. I would translate them into Western um, manuscript because all they wrote in, all the Japanese musicians wrote in, were a, a Gregorian chant notation. So I would translate the Gregorian chant notations into Western manuscript and put them so they could go in the score. The main job, and this is of any show, I don't know about today, but in those days, you know, um, I, 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 if I'm if I'm expected to make a score sound good, you've got to give me tools. Okay, in a dance show, do you need? I need seventeen dancers, and that means you only get four singers. Okay, well these dancers better sing. Do they have to sing like Renee Fleming? No, but they have to be able to carry a tune. They can't sing out of tune, and I will not have people mouthing on the stage. Mm -mm, mm -mm. So, well, you'd be surprised. Uh, so, so, uh, so um, that's one job. You couldn't sing? Goodbye. I mean, when I say can't sing, can't carry a tune. Mm. You can sing. I don't care what octave. And it's in tune, I'll, you're in. You may be singing a man's role, man's key. You may be singing with the baritone, but you, you're not out of tune. Because you can't fix that. You can't fix that in a chorus. And the problem is 90% of people can't tell the difference anyway. And what I mean is people listening cannot tell when an orchestra is in tune or when it, but you, but when it's not, when it is in tune, it's a different brilliant thing sound. Okay. So that's, that's a very important part of the job. The most important is having the, the company sound the best it can. It is the musical theater underlying. So my job is to make sure that in auditions, I let nobody buy that I can't work with, that I can't make work. And as I said, there's lots of tricks, lots of tricks that 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 you know you learn with classical choruses how to how to make them sound not like that, right? So uh, um, uh, I used every one of them several times in many shows, but 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 but. That's that. That is to me the most focused thing you can do. And the other thing that I think is most important, you know, supporting the music, supporting the composer, uh, uh, being the being the uh, conduit between the composer and the and the director, when there's not conflict, but you know, when the director and the composer both aren't in the room at the same time, there is, a, shall we say, different standards. Okay. So, so you have to sort of clean that up without, by, by, in a loving way. Diplomacy. And, and respectful way, right? Yeah. You know? And, 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 and I, I believe it's appreciated in the long run. Uh, so take care of any outside external business, meaning like take, figuring out who you're going to hire on the stage. Hal Hastings taught me one other thing. You're the one point. There's a lot of things outside contractors, they're called in the business today. They hire all the musicians in the band. Most of the time, 
they have a discussion with the conductor, but basically they're hiring the band. So basically, psychologically, those musicians are working for him, not you. That, to me, is backwards. So one of the things Hal Hastings taught me and I picked up on right away was hire your own musicians, meaning there is no outside conductors, no outside contractors in my shows if you look up. Yeah, you're right. Dream Girls was the only one because that was a takeover. I took that over and it was already established. But there's none because, and that's including at the Round Rock, when they where they have them when I'm not there. Every other time they have a they have another outside, and I'll tell you why. In my contract, I say I have total say of the orchestra. Total. Nobody else has any say in the orchestra but me. Who's in it, and how they play, and where they sit. Now, yes, it got easier as years went by for me to say that because they heard the orchestra. Right, they knew. Those those who understand. Those who didn't understand thought, well, he must know more than I, so let me get away with it. I hand the list. If they, if they insist on an outside contractor, I said, I don't see why, why are you paying him. I can handle any problem that comes up. You don't need somebody on the outside that you're paying $600, $700 a week. That's never here but one week. I'm not saying that there's not times when you need these guys. I never did. I didn't. I wasn't trained that way. That's why the orchestra sounds the way it does. That's one of the reasons. There's mm -hmm. other reasons, but that's one of the reasons. The other thing that I do, and I think it's important, is I allow the players to choose their own subs. Their own subs? Oh, yep. wow. And they can have three each. I give them, this is my terms, I give them two, maybe to, if I hear something great and I think they have a bad show, give them two or three performances before I say out mm -hmm. or in. Um, most of the time it's in because you know what? When you give them the responsibility, they're not going to hire them. They don't want to. <laughs> yeah. Come on. You're right. But when you have somebody that is self-controlling everything and sends a sub in for a guy that did then he doesn't have any confidence in him either. Okay, this is the reason why. This is the reason he buys. And this is the other reason why the orchestra sounds the way it does. They have an invest. I give them, I make them have an investment in their own orchestra. Those are the basic functions. And then, then you are a house mother from then on for both the orchestra right. and upstairs. Hello there, this is Eva Gabor and Eddie Albert. Yes, before we were on Green Acres, we were both Broadway babies, and we love listening to Behind the Curtain, Broadway's living legends. And don't forget to tell them to put pasties on, and a pastry, uh, no, don't put pasties, go to patreon.com and set a donation. Yes, patreon.com, oh, do it for me, not for Jaja. Welcome to the theater, darling. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship with the orchestrator? You know, you've worked with someone like Jonathan Tunick many, many times. Um, but what's what's that like, especially on these new shows, you know? Most of my relationships with orchestrators yeah. are great because we we both, most of them, most, I mean, all of them are collaborative. Right. The orchestrators are, I've been privileged, again, with the best, Sturban, Tunick. Uh, um, Bill Brown, oh, uh, yeah. Billy Wild, Billy Billy Byers, um, mm-hmm. Sid Raymond. Oh, Thank of you. course, oh, Sid Raymond. Yeah, those guys. You know, you 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 have those guys on your side. As I said, I'm not shy about ideas. I'm also not shy about going. I I don't understand this orchestration. I don't think it's good enough. Nobody says that. I don't, no. <laughs> I'm patting myself on the back. I'm just simply saying, I didn't know any better when I first said that. You know, that's also part of your job. I'm sorry, man. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're the CEO, you don't go, oh, geez, I can't yell at that girl because she'll cry. Come on. It's just part of the job. This is missing. It's not there. It's it's a micromanagement of bullshit. You know, like, like keeping little pieces of paper. How many times have you subbed this week? How many times? I don't care about that. I don't care about any union rules about you can only sub half the time. I don't care. If you're happy and I'm happy, I don't care where you are. I'd rather you be here. But if you got something you think is more important, it's your life. Go do it. But don't leave me like leaving in, in the lurch. That's my rule. I don't follow any rules but my own in terms of box balance. But the purpose is to to to, to create a working environment that is conducive to creativity. That's the only gig that you have as a musical director. And you have to be as committed and as good as they are. If you're a mediocre conductor, you can't expect, they're gonna play great no matter what, but they'll play even greater. And with more freedom and with the love that they, reminded of the love they had for the first time they ever played an instrument, Every time they play, that's what you want. You want them to say to you, God, I can't believe that this gig is over. That's what you want to hear at the end. I'm so curious about your your relationships with different composers. And do the relationships change? uh, And do your duties change depending on who you're working with? Say, we know so much about your work with Sondheim, but tell us a little bit about working with people like John Kander or Cy Coleman. Well, it's different in the sense that they approach everything. Both both of those boys approach different things differently. Cy had perfect pitch, which is a whole other oof, weird thing because he would write in in in, in, uh, in other words, you never knew where he changed keys. You had to take, you know, uh, you had to look for five minutes to find out how he changed keys because he never did. He he just went there. Yeah, he heard it. 
And it, it's nightmare, nightmare for the orchestration, the orchestrator. I mean, Sidney, uh, uh, Hershey K went nuts on, on, on the 20th century because he changed keys and you go, what? How'd that happen? <laughs> no key signature, nothing to see you see it coming, you know. So <laughs> jazz, yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And uh, Cantor is very classically, I mean, his head is classical. And he, he, like, for instance, I have a theory about singing. You don't make somebody sing something they can't. In other words, uh, if Steve writes something, who's great about this, by the way, I will call him up and say, you know, this guy hasn't got an F. So I'm going to have to lower this because they all care about keys like crazy. This is like the, the holy grail. You cannot change a key. Right? It's like, you know, I don't know what it is, like a million adultery if you change a key. So I, will always, I would always call Steve and say, look, this guy cannot sing. He hasn't got a good F. He's got a good E flat, but he hasn't got a good F. He's got a good D, but he has no F. So I'd like to lower it a step and see what you think. I don't think you're going to notice any dramatic change, but let me let him let me work him up in the song, and you come and hear it. And he did, and would always go. He's always going. And as as that relationship went, if I said I'm going to change the key, he went okay, fine, okay. Candor and um, Cy Coleman. Kander wants to sit at the piano and try it himself. He didn't quite believe me. But they always found out that I was right and fixed it. I mean, or either changed the key themselves in a different way than I was going to do it, mm-hmm. or did something to allow the person to only have that high note, right? And Coleman was the same. Mm-hmm. Not mistrust so much as I want to hear it myself. So, so we put it together, we sing it in the key that they he wrote it in, and then I play it for him in the key that I chose, and he'd either adjust it or say, but they all they never questioned me on it. It's an important thing. You don't put an actor on the stage doing something they can't do. This happens all the time. All the time. You just lower to half step, everything would be fine. Do you give oh. acting notes? Do you give acting notes when you're when you're teaching music for the first time? Absolutely. Not not serious acting notes, but like, what does that lyric mean? What are you talking about? I don't get it. Yeah. Tell me. I also sometimes put an image in their mind. Hmm. You know, he's talking about here is this, and, and, and maybe if you, whatever. Because we, I mean, we've talked to some directors who said, you know, they don't want the music director to do that. They just want them yeah, to I'm teach sure the you notes. Have. And I, I go, well, that's kind of a waste of a great but, resource. But, but, but it's, again, it's the way you say to the director. I never say anything to an actor that he doesn't know about. Mm-hmm. I go to him and say, I'm going to have to talk through the lyrics with her because there's some places she's not getting them. And I'm just going to give her some specifics about the lyrics, not giving her any blocking or, or you know, what her emotions should be. I'm yeah. just going to hear what the lyric actually means, which is what I did. I do. I don't say move left, sit down here. I don't do that. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, I think they're afraid or they don't think the guy can do it. Mm. I've never had a director say to me, don't do that. Um, that's my job. Not once. Good. I mean, he is the partner. He is the boss. Mm-hmm. Can't leave him out in the dark. You can't show him something. The only time we've ever pulled something uh, is, is in Sunday in the Park. Mandy and I came up with the idea of doing him doing both voices. Oh, with the dog? Yeah. 
And we just laid it on a seat. We didn't say anything about it because it he used just, to be a girl. It used to be a girl who came out. So we have something to show you, Steve. Sit down. Don't say anything yet. Go. That's the only time we pulled, you know, without, I didn't warn him. I, let him running I was afraid if I told him, he, he has a, you know, they have images in their head. But Steve is so collaborative and such a collaborative artist that I knew if I showed it to him, he'd either say, what the hell are you doing? Or, or he'd like it. Have you ever had a lot of those, what the hell are you doing <laughs> things? No. No, you're... No, John Cullum and I and Kevin Klein put together the entire number of Da, 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 da. I can't remember the name of it. Da, 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 you know, in the in the dressing on the twentieth yeah. on the twentieth century, the dressing room scene. Yeah, that duet. Oh yeah, but you know what I'm talking about. Yes, we put it all totally together and showed it to Hal and Steve. I showed it to Hal, so we blocked it. We blocked it and everything. Hal, you want to see it? And he laughed and came in, and he made correction. He made adjustments, but he basically left what we did. You know, it's it's the spirit of something. You yeah. know, you're not going. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, I directed that. I fixed that up. No, you didn't. Don't use that language. You know, <laughs> for one thing. But yeah, but yeah. I mean, it's you know, it's 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 the spirit in which you do something. You know, you're not trying to take over anything. You're trying to. They see that you're enthusiastic about the project, about what you're doing. That's that's. To me, important. I can't do it any other way, anyway. So, if they don't like it, they have to fire me. I, I don't know how to. I don't know how to. I don't. I don't know how to. I get do that. It. I get that. And, you know, just teach the notes and go away. I just can't. What do you look for out of a director? For for you, what's the ideal director music director relationship? Joe Mantello. <laughs> Joe Mantello. Yeah, because we both ask each other questions about. Like if I wanted to do something with an actor, I'd say, do you want to do this or do you want me to play around with it and see if you can, and then see if I can get somewhere lyrically with that kind of communication. I had it with Hal. I had it with Joe Montello. I have it with Lonnie. Uh, I I would say that 90% of the directors I've worked with, I have that relationship. And Paul, I'm sure that every show has its difficulties, but was there a show specifically for you that you found, for whatever reason, the hardest to music direct? Or a show that you found yourself getting emotionally invested in, and then, you know, maybe you had that emotional investment in the rehearsal hall, and then for whatever reason, it just didn't translate to an audience when it got on stage. Merrily. Merrily. Talk about your experience with that, please. I, I, I... I thought it worked. I, and I still do. I don't understand the problem. Mm. I, I always blamed it on the audience itself. Where you can't <laughs> can't think coming going backwards. What's the matter with you? I, I don't. Right. Know. It's a, you know. It's a story. And you know, so many people I think go to the theater and they're um, rigid. You know, you can't be rigid and go to the theater or the opera or the ballet. It's it's an opening experience. And I think Merrily suffered from that because it was a little harder to deal with. Mm. I never found it hard to deal with. But then my mind, as a as a creative artist, goes wherever it has to go. I, I never, you know, I mean, I don't 
think like other people do in that respect. Marilyn never bothered me from day one. I, I could never understand why people didn't, it didn't work. Now, I'm not sitting out, not involved with the actors and the material and all that. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm not doing that. So I, I give them that credit. I'm not saying they're stupid. I'm just saying I can't, I never have understood that. It made perfect sense to me. And, and I saw the struggling with communication. I saw the struggling with, with, you know, that they were struggling with it. And, you know, it's not so much we changed the music, but we changed the way it looked and what we did a lot. Mm. Didn't work. Didn't work. And there we were Sunday, the Sunday after closing, making an album, which everybody loves. Well, I, I'm sorry. Now I'm really confused. You know, but it was a great score. But no, there's not that most of the shows I've done. I, that's the wrong. It's not the wrong question to ask me, but yeah, I'm sure other musical directors or people, creative people, would have a much more succinct answer than me. I'm pretty much a kid. I jump in the water and try and swim, and I'll stay above water no matter what. <laughs> you know, I mean, I just it's just a process that, and you do get lost in it. You do get lost in the process. All right, Paul. So. You get to conduct one score for the rest of your life, but it's only one score. You don't get to touch another one. What's the one score? Uh, it's the classic desert island, you know. I know, I know. Well, it's between two. I will tell you. Well, it's between three. I'll tell you what it is. Okay. Sweeney, Night Music, Kismet, Gypsy. And his Didn't see Kismet coming. Didn't see Kismet coming. I have to say that one, that one, that one a little out of, I, I love it. But Listen to the music sometimes. I, I love the music. I, it's the orchestra music. Yeah. Ah, gotcha. And 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 because it's boring. Of course. Yeah. yeah. And, and also the the one that is so much fun to conduct, not as much as Gypsy, but so much fun is "Any Get Your Gun." Oh wow! Narrow it down any way you want. Cause I can't get it down here for the mess. That, it's that's great. A, that was, that's it. great. Paul, it's been such a pleasure <laughs> talking to you. We can't wait to read uh, the, auto, the memoir when it comes out, and we'll make sure to plug that on the show. Please take care of yourself, Paul. It's been such a pleasure getting to talk to you. Thanks. Thanks, Brad. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And a big thanks to the punchy players, Jeff Marquis, who is bringing back Lucy, Betty, Judy, and Morda shill for us. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you come in. In order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us just one star and you can make us feel as baddie, baddie, bad as Annie did in that really weird production in Boston where Annie dreamt that she was being adopted, but then she ended up back where in the orphanage right back where she started yeah true story rob saw it yes and it was batty it was bizarre i was there i was oh god so head on over to itunes and make us feel even more special than we already do have you ever
ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There is enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. <laughs> 